Lord, how you've loved me, I don't deserve grace on top of grace. More than I've asked for, more than I'm worth, grace on top of grace. And how sweet the sound, once lost and now found, heaven came down. Grace rescued me, hallelujah, I am free from my sin and penalty. Oh, at the cross you took my place, with your grace on top of grace, oh, with your grace on top of grace. Lord, how you love, Lord, how you love me, I don't deserve grace on top of grace. More than I've asked for, more than I'm worth, grace on top of grace. How sweet, how sweet the sound, once lost and now found, heaven came down. Grace rescued me, hallelujah, I am free from my sin and penalty. Oh, at the cross you took my place, with your grace on top of grace, yeah, with your grace on top of grace. Sweet the sound, how sweet the sound, once lost and now found, heaven came down, grace rescued me, oh and how sweet the sound, once lost and now found, heaven came down. Grace rescued me, hallelujah, I am free from my sin and penalty. Oh, at the cross you took my place, with your grace on top of grace, with your grace on top of grace. Oh, hallelujah, I am free from my sin and penalty. Oh, at the cross you took my place With your grace on top of grace Yeah, with your grace on top of grace Good morning, Carpenter's Way. Why don't you guys get up on your feet, find somebody, and tell them good morning. Keeper of this life, I 
Good morning, Carpenter's Way. It is so great to have you here this morning. Look at y'all. The weather's warming up. I, it, it's been freezing in East Texas, like about 45 or 50 degrees. And now, for those of you watching all over the country, <laughs> should have moved to Texas. Okay. But it is good to see you today. If you are visiting with us at Carpenter's Way, welcome to our family. Uh, now you're officially family with us. We're, we're awfully glad you're here. Let me kind of set the tone for what we're going to do this morning. Uh, we are a, a, a small Bible institute. That's what we are. We get into the Word of God. We study it verse by verse. We look at what it says for itself, and then we discuss it in our Bible studies. And uh, we are privileged that you are with us in this room today. If you're visiting, I met some visitors today. Some of you are watching on Internet. Thanks for joining in with us. Uh, we're honored that you would be here today, and it is our hope that as much as we want you to like us, and we do, 
We're glad you're here, but we want you to fall in love with Jesus because he already loves you. And uh, we want to remind you of that. We are in a series right now called Who Is This Man? We're looking at all four Gospels. Uh, we're putting them together in, in chronological, chronological, say that five times, chronological order at, at the life of Christ. And uh, so if you brought up a Bible or you have one at home, in a, in a little while you're going to be able to join us and uh, look at it with us. Uh, if not, it'll be on the screen, but we're awfully glad to have you here. We are very excited. Where's Robert? Robert Grimes. I know he's in this room somewhere. Is he right behind me? Robert, why don't you come on up? Robert is our pastor of missions. <laughs> he was sitting in my chair. You took my chair. <laughs> Robert Grimes is our pastor of missions, and you've been doing that, what, three or four years now? Long time? Also an elder in this church, so longer than that has been a pastor in this church, and we are super excited about some upcoming things. Over the next couple months, some of those things you're not going to find out till the middle of March, but we're really excited about February, and, and Robert's going to share with you why. Um, yes, and it's great to see all y'all here this morning. I am excited about February. As most of you know, missions is very important in Carpenter's Way. We have a lot of people that travel on missions. We have a lot of people that I won't mention this morning on this list that are involved in different missions uh, outside of the church, both locally and around the world. And missions is important year-round, but we're going to take February of this year and focus on our missionaries. Uh, it, is a, it is a big deal. And if you've been on a mission trip or you're working in missions, you know how it can be. So we're going to focus on it the year, but February is going to be our main month. And what we're going to do is each week we're going to, we're going to talk about different missionaries, and then we'll have a, a special event the last Sunday in February. And so this morning what I want to do is I'm, I'm going to read off who we support as far as missionaries. We're in the process of updating our little flyers on each of these missionaries, and many times you see these on Sunday morning on the screen. Once we get them all updated, they'll be out there on the table in the front where you can pick them up, take them home, put them on your refrigerator, pray over them. Missionaries always need prayer. Uh, they, need, uh, uh, they, need to be feel, they need to feel those prayers from the churches that support them. But I'm going to start with a video this morning, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to read off what missionaries that we actually support from our budget. Okay, And this list is... we. we Pick these missionaries based on a mission investment team, which during this month you'll meet each one of them if you don't know them. So I'm going to start with this video from one of our missionaries. Hi, Carpenter's Way. I'm Cassidy Eberlin, and I'm one of the missionaries that you support. Uh, I'm with an organization called In His Hands Orphan Home in Haiti. Um, we have 39 kids. Um, I'm just going to give you a quick overview of what the kids do, um, what I do, just a little bit of information about everything. So we have 39 kids here, and they are in the Word all the time. We have um, devotion every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and all of our kids go to church on Sundays. So me and the other missionary family that live here, um, we switch Sundays. Um, we do like a little children's church, so we switch out every other Sunday, and we'll do a children's church with our kids, and then the other half of our kids will go to church in the community. Um, we have 14 girls, 25 boys. Um, they're all great. We have a great Haitian pastor here that really pours into our kids and is a great example for them. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about what I do. Um, I'm the guest house manager, so when we have teams here, um, I'm in charge of them. I help coordinate what they're doing, make sure they taken care of, everything like that. So guest house manager, I'm a preschool teacher in the mornings. Five of our kids 
from the orphanage come to my class, and then I have two kids that come from the community, and I'm teaching them English, and they have done great this year. They have learned so much. Um, also, I do some community outreach with our kids. Um, so basically, I take them out into the community. Um, I've been trying to teach them to give back, pray for others, show the love of Jesus Christ to others, um, and they have done great, and they love doing it. Um, <clears throat> Also, me and the other missionary family, um, we do two Bible studies. We do one with our girls, and then we do another one with the young women. Um, so we stay pretty busy here. This summer, we're actually expecting 10 straight weeks of teams in our guest house. So when we have teams come, um, they do all kinds of stuff with our kids. Vacation Bible school. We have construction teams, medical teams, um, you name it. They do it. So we are really blessed with all of our teams. Our kids great, get great opportunities, and they also are in the Word all summer because our teams come and they just pour into our kids and give them the Word. Um, so how I got, how I ended up in Haiti was, in 2015 I started coming to Haiti, and after my first trip here, I knew that the Lord wanted me here, and I prayed and prayed and prayed and waited and waited and waited, and here I am. <laughs> I've lived here for a year, and I'm so thankful to be with this organization and with the other missionary family that lives here. Um, it has been great. There is no doubt in my mind this is not where I'm supposed to be. Um, so I'm super thankful for all, all of your support and your prayers and everything. If you have any questions, please let me know. I'm sure the church can give you my information, and we can talk. I can answer your questions. I can tell you more than just in this like three minute video um so thank you guys so so much okay so that was cassidy cassidy eberlin and y'all many of y'all may know her she's actually a member of this church so we're real excited about cassidy and she, as she said a minute ago she's actually working with in his hands orphan outreach in haiti so we are trying to put together a trip to go to haiti at this point so if you have some interest in that, uh, you can talk to Clay and Yvette Alverson, who are sitting somewhere over there. And um, you can get your information about what we're going to do, about what the estimated cost is. Um, and we'd love for you to, to, to consider going on that trip. So I'm going to read the rest of these missions, missionaries off. So in South America, we actually support a missionary in Brazil. That's Mario and uh, Jaciera Silva who we take many trips with on Amazon Outreach, and I'll mention that we also have a trip going to the Amazon this summer. Uh, you can contact uh, Pam or Kevin Hudson, which I'm not sure they're here this morning, but there will be an interest meeting coming up pretty soon on that. Mario uh, is part of First Presbyterian Church in Manaus, and I will mention that we also support uh, that church in its ministry towards uh, the Venezuelan refugees. Then in Guatemala, uh, we support several missionaries that all work with uh, Students International, which is Noah Nails, Victoria Flores, uh, Maria G uh, Garcia, Alvaro D Diaz, and Louis and Alyssa Baranida. And I'm probably messing up that last name, but you get the idea. So there will be a trip. Jeremy and uh, Chastity Overby lead a trip every year to Guatemala. We'll be doing that again this summer, so you can contact them about possibly attending with them. And then here in the States, we, we support John and Charlie uh, Lotzegel at the Rio Grande uh, Bible, uh, Bible Institute in Edinburgh, Texas. Here in town, we support uh, Paula Havard at the pregnancy help, with the Pregnancy Help Center, Godtell, who is Martin Baker, 
uh, Seasons of Hope, which is Margaret Sal, Christian Men's Job Corps of Lufkin, which is also known as the Field, Field House, which is C.D. Bindham, uh, the Salvation Army, which is Jason and Michelle Moore, uh, the Mosaic Center, which is led by Re Rebecca Reed, uh, and we have several church members that are involved in these ministries that are on the board and so forth, and several are members here at this church. Then in the Chicago area, we support uh, Josh Ferguson and his wife, Allie, who work for CREW, which is Campus Crusade for Christ, and they work with the military there. Uh, in Africa, we support Rosina Ferdinand. She's in the Madagascar area, and she works with African Inland Missions. We support Kent and Amy Embleton in Mozambique. They work with MAF, which is uh, Mission Aviation Fellowship. And of course, in India, we support Yesu Potam and Monica with Love and Care Ministries. I never try Yesu Potam's last name because I definitely know I'll screw that one up. Uh, and their kids. In Russia, we support Daniel and Ksenia uh, Chersnov. They also work with CREW. They're in St. Petersburg. So these are the missionaries we support at this time. So if y'all would just really pray for them and pray that, that, that you would be able to feel what they go through, uh, support them through those prayers. These, a lot of these ministries, like the last one I read off in Russia, it's rough because the government doesn't support missionaries there. So just please be, keep them in your mind all the time and, and really look forward to what we're going to do this month. And I especially uh, want you to be here the last Sunday of the month. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. So let me, let me put some numbers on this for you. And I, um, this, uh, this is a hugely important thing. And I, I know that if you've never been on a mission trip, you can't connect with this. And so it's kind of like, oh, yeah, church does missions. Um, Robert didn't mention that we also spent, send about $45,000 a year as a church to the, um, the International uh, Mission Board for the Southern Baptist Convention. That's really the only way we as a church connect with the SBC. But we, on top of what he just mentioned, which represents about $47,000, there's another forty-three dollars or 44000 that we send to the International Mission Board. And that doesn't include the money that we put aside uh, like to support the refugees, Venezuelan refugees, and other ministry stuff that we're doing. J just to give you an idea, in the budget alone, this does not include uh, short-term mission trip investment. This does not include money you put in or that Julie and I put in. We, we support missionaries on our own as well. Our, um, this is quite incredible. Uh, we, 15 cents of every dollar that you give to Carpenter's Way leaves this building almost immediately for mission work whether it's here in the community. Uh, this just increased a couple years ago, and I'm, I'm trying to help you understand something here. This just increased in the last three or four years because we paid this facility off, and because we don't have debt, it allowed us to, to, to increase by 5 or 6% uh, our giving to missions. And, and w whenever we talk about missions, usually somebody emails me and says, we, need, we have so many problems here we need to work with. Please understand that, that mission work is a mandate that we're to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. What is incredible about Carpenter's Way, though, our church, is that most of our missionaries, or, or some of them who, who go out, the individuals we support, grew up here or have been discipled here. Case, Cassidy, uh, Josh, and Allie, these are people that have been here and that are part of our church family. And it is exciting. And what a privilege, you guys. What a privilege. We have a $900,000 a year budget. That's what our budget is. Um, over 15% of that budget goes right away to mission work. That is, that is incredible. Now, 
Um, I'm going to say this again as the month goes on. But the reality is, if we were to add in all the money, there are, there are over about 50 people every year go on short-term mission trips. Some years it's more, some years it's less, but we average around 50 folks. If you take the money that's invested in that, from you giving to them and supporting them, to them going to what the church supports, so that 15% is just budget. If you add in what many of us give individually to these missionaries, we are probably looking at just south of $500,000 a year comes out of the church family towards missions. That's over half of what we put in our budget. Okay? So the truth is, the scriptures say where your money is, that's where your heart is, where your wallet is, your heart is. Our heart is in missions, and we are unapologetic for that. That is, that is what we do. Understand that the other 85 cents and dollars, it, it, it goes towards helping poor in our church. It goes towards paying light bills. It goes towards taking care of staff, ministering to children and students, paying for camps, all that stuff. That, too, is a mission field, and that's what we do. The reality is every penny of every dollar given goes towards mission work, and some even leaves the area. We're taking care of Jerusalem. We're working on Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, and we want you involved in that. That's what we do as a family. The church is not a business, and, and here's what's cool. We don't have big givers for the most part. We have lots of little givers, and that's what makes this work. And I, I want to encourage you this month to push yourself a little bit if you're not mission-minded. Push yourself and listen. Each week, over the next few weeks, we're going to have sharing missionaries just like Cassidy. Ask yourself if God would have you go, and if not, help somebody else to go. And at the end of the month, we're going to take the whole Sunday morning, the 24th, and uh, we're going to emphasize our missions, what God is doing. We're going to, the, the message is going to be about mission work and being involved. And, and, and uh, then during the 11 o'clock hour, and this is going to be a surprise to our Bible study leaders, but during the 11 o'clock hour, the entryway is going to be full of tables where our missionaries, some of our missionaries, uh, their information, some of our missionaries will be here. Some cannot because they're global. But we're going to have information, and we're going to want you. Please, the 24th, I know some of you have 8 o'clock Bible study in the morning. But would you plan on just staying and meander through the tables and talk to missionaries and talk to, look, at the, look at the information? This is what we do as a body of Christ. We don't just, we really do live in a culture and a time where we just eat, 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 eat. Well, we're supposed to eat so we can give. That's what we do. And this is one of the ways we do it. So engage this month. It is our prayer and our plan to do this every year. We want to do this every year. We want to put missions more at the center. Man, I was talking with Jared uh, Pig, who is the chairman of our deacon team. He'd like 51% of our budget at some time to be mission work. Um, I'd like our giving to be so good it could be 80%. Um, every penny given is going to go to work. It goes to work, and we make sure of that. And that won't happen unless you give, and we want to encourage you. And I know some of you give are able to give more. Some of you aren't giving at all, and you need to. That's participating in family. If it's 5 bucks a month, if it's 20 I, I know I sound, like, I sound like a salesman, but I'm not. I'm casting vision. It's different. This is what we are allowed to do, and Cassidy is there partially because we're supporting her. And uh, thank you. Josh and Allie are there partially because we support them. We don't support them fully, but we participate with them. And I want to thank you. Nothing gets done without your involvement. Um, we, I was talking to Alicia, and I'm going to mess this number up, but there are about, there, there are an enormous amount of you that are involved in ministry. Thank you for doing that. I'm not going to give the number out because somebody's going to correct me. It's huge. You guys are actively involved. Don't stop. Keep going. Keep serving. Keep giving. Do you have any idea how many people we have? You had a, I, 
There's at least 150 people uh, involved in the discipleship of our children. In the student ministry, there's at least 27 adults. I mean, you, you just start adding up. Every time I go into the Mosaic Center, I see a bunch of you. Every time the Pregnancy Help Center is full of Carpenter's Way people. Uh, other ministries in this community, Salvation Army, we've got people on the board, Men's Job Corps, men, we've got men on the board. You are, you, are, you are doing the deal. Keep doing it, you guys, and, and look at what else God is doing. So I, I could go on for the next month, and I will, but not this morning. So thank you guys so much for what you do. Be proud of what God is allowing us to do together. You should be proud. You should be proud of that young lady. And, and, and go see her. Go see her this summer if the Lord puts that on your heart. What an incredible opportunity. Um, so with that being said, I am going to ask our ushers to come forward for our offering, and I'm going to say a couple things about that. The, this is the one part of the service that really belongs to those of us who attend here regularly. If this is your home church, you need to be involved. Uh, not just because it pays my salary. That's, really, that's a small portion of what we do. You need to be involved because this is what God tells us to do and encourage each other. And you're seeing this morning it's being sent all over the place to, you know, offerings are like manure. You want to spread it around so young things grow. So it's time to give some manure. Churches all over the country are going to be using that next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you're doing, uh, what you're allowing us to participate in, what you're doing through us and, and in us, Father. Thank you. May we not be sponges only, but may we be people who, who are squeezed by you and we can't help but talk about the joy of the Lord. And, and Father, some of us you are going to raise up to send out. And we've got, ne we've got young people. Father, I think of the young people who are even interested in serving, who are talking about mission work. And whether they not end up as, as full-time vocational missionaries or missionaries in this country, um, Alicia and Jeff and Mark Dubos and their teams are absolutely committed to raising up the next generation of spiritual leaders, and we're thankful for that. I thank you for, uh, for our Bible study that has young married couples who are desiring church leadership and growing in their relationship with you. And those of us who are more seasoned, Father, may we continue to have a passion for the lost uh, as we grow in our love and our relationship with you. And I thank you for Cassidy this morning, and I ask you bless her. This morning as she's, she's working with these children, as she's working in her church, would you bless her? Give her strength, Father. She must be lonely at times. She must miss her family. She misses being just a, a recipient of worship. But you have called her to serve, so lift her up and let her know we're praying for her and we love her. And, Father, I pray that we would rise up as a church and give more, Father, that we would be neck deep involved in the work of your kingdom around this world until we go home. We commit the rest of our time for you. I want to thank you how you provided for us as a church financially through the years and how we've, it's allowed us the privilege to participate not just in local mission work but international mission work. May we continue for that. I pray you would bless those who give. I pray that you would bless those who receive. And may we be about the business of both. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Father God Who art in heaven Hallowed be Thy name Thy kingdom come Oh, blessed be your 
Blessed be your name. Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. We no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit.
King of glory, God, you reign. What heart can stand the glory of your presence? What soul can see your face and stay the same? What love is this that lays aside his splendor? What God is this that gives himself away for you are holy you are holy lord almighty god you you reign, you never change, be lifted high, exalted, forevermore, the Lord of Lords, the King of Majesty. Oh God, you reign, you never change, be lifted high, exalted, forevermore, the Lord of Lords, the King of Majesty. Holy, you are holy.
there you are words can't describe you i fall down before you there you are and there you are in all of your glory heavenly hosts they sing your praise and there you are seated at the right hand with victory in your hand there you are and my heart cries out holy oh god you are worthy of all the glory honor and praise oh, my heart cries out holy oh god you are worthy of all the glory the honor and praise oh there you in all of your glory the heavenly host they sing your praise and there you are you're seated at the right hand with victory in your hand there you are and my heart cries out holy oh god you are worthy of all the glory, the honor and praise. Oh, my heart cries out holy. Oh, God, you are worthy of all the glory, the honor and praise. Oh, there you are. Oh, there you God, you are worthy of all the glory, the honor and praise. Oh, my heart cries out, holy. Oh, God, you are worthy of all the glory, the honor and praise. And my heart cries out, holy. Oh, God, you are worthy of all the glory honor and praise my heart cries out holy oh god you are worthy of all the glory honor and praise 
and that song is meaning more and more to me every week. I, I, know, I know you live on the same land I do with the same things, and sometimes you wonder, God, where are you? And then he shows up. Maybe not right away. Maybe it takes months. Maybe it takes years. We go, oh, that, that's right. There you are. There you are. I love that song, Chad. Thank you. Thank you, worship team. Very, very meaningful. As the kids go to their programming, let's take a moment and pray for them. What they do in there is not child care. And I'm, I'm just becoming, maybe I'm getting older and more sentimental, but I got to tell you what, what we do behind the scenes, what happens in the student ministry, hot hearts, uh, staff being with kids, I'm telling you, it matters. It matters for eternity. And uh, let's just commit these young men and women, these, these children. They are not the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today, believe it or not. And uh, we, every, every ounce of energy we can pour into these kids, man, let's, let's pray for them. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you show up. Father, the disciples were confused by you. John the Baptist was perplexed by you. We are often confused. We wonder where you are. How could you allow to happen in the world what's happening? And then all of a sudden you show up. It's like, oh, there you are. There you are in your glory and in your power. I'm sorry we doubt, Father. I'm sorry we mistrust, but thank you for not killing us when we do. Thank you for saying, just hold on, I'll get this. Father, our kids right now, our children through fifth grade are going into programming. There are people with babies this morning that are hugging on them, loving on them. There are children about to sit down and hear a story about you from your word. Lord Jesus, uh, this is not child care. This is discipleship. And may we be up for the task. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to every child being ministered to this morning, whether they're three weeks old or in third grade. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning. We need to hear from you. I thank you, Father, for what you have done on our behalf. And may we be able to say at the end of this, at this time this morning, there you are. There you are, God. We've been waiting for you. Now we see you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What you see on the screen behind me is the coronation chair at the Abbey in London. It is known historically as St. Edward's Chair. It's an ancient wooden chair on which the British monarchs sit when they're being crowned at their coronation service. A coronation is a ceremony where a king or a queen or a sovereign of a nation is crowned, uh, declared ruler before God and the whole people. That's what it looks like when I saw it a couple years ago. Just take, take that in. Just leave that picture up there for a moment. That's what it looks like with all, with, without all of its adornments on it. It is... Uh, well, it's impressive because 38 rulers, British royalty, has sat on that when being crowned over the past 700 years. But the truth be told, it's kind of trashed. Would you hit the next one, please? Um, <laughs> it's kind of beat up because history tells us that in the 1700s and 1800s, they would teach children, educate children in the abbey, and they would sneak out in the middle of the night and, and draw on it and, and scribble. So it's full of gra graffiti. Uh, don't, don't change it till I tell you to the next scene. But you'll notice at the bottom, I think this has it, you notice there's a big stone in it, and that is, uh, that is the stone from Scotland that in the 1200s, late 1200s, uh, when they defeated the Scots, 
they captured it. It's called the Stone of Destiny, and the chair was made by King Edward to fit that stone, and it represented that we're going to rule you whether you want to be ruled or not. Now, there's an interesting story. You might watch a biography on it because it was actually stolen by some Scots, uh, I think, in the early 1900s. But uh, bottom line is that is a very insignificant chair, and I've, I've seen it. My brother actually, in his rebellious ways, and you'll see him, he'll be in town next week, but my brother actually sneaked over the line and touched it. I don't know if he got a buzz, but, but he touched it, and it was inappropriate. It's about 80% of what he does is. But uh, it's interesting. The next picture, though, is what it looks like or looked like when Queen Elizabeth was actually being coronated or crowned as queen. One of the other things that happens uh, at the moment a monarch is being placed is not only is she wearing vestments or he, not only are they sitting in the coronation chair, not only is the stone of Scotland there, but also a scepter is handed to them. And I'm going to talk about that in a few moments. A scepter represents the power and the authority that is given to that, that sovereign to rule the nation. From afar, if you have not been to London, which is most of you, including my wife who's mad about it, if you have not, until you saw PBS's The Crown, it seems kind of weird. And I remember my brother telling me, you know, it's, it's actually weird when you go there, when you go through uh, and you see the crown jewels, because you can look at them. Uh, when you actually go there, all of a sudden the monarchy takes um, significance. It's kind of cool. It's amazing the history that's involved, good and bad. I remember going to uh, London. I went with Justin Kirkwood on the way back from India one time. Uh, Justin used to be our youth pastor in this church. But I remember when we came back, we took a tour. Uh, my brother helped take care, got us a tour guide, and we took a tour. And there's actually one of the ancient walls of Rome is in the middle of the city of London. Uh, there's a lot of old churches that are burnt out. But when you go and you look at the crown jewels and you can actually see King James, and there are names that you would know whether you don't know any, you think you don't know much about English or British history, but you know more than you think. If you're a Christian, you know the King James Bible. Well, you can see the armor that he owned. Each king, each royal has their own armor. It's fascinating. And it's even moving uh, when you go into the abbey. Uh, you can walk right all around the abbey and you see the, how it really looks in real life. It's different than on TV because of the shapes and everything. But you walk around and you actually see the graves of people that you know his, in history. Uh, Darwin's grave is there, for instance. I know that you know him as the guy who started evolution, but the truth is he was a pastor. Uh, very religious. Uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times when we take the pulpit and we have an axe to grind, we don't fill in the story. Uh, I'm not saying that evolution is a good idea or that he was even a good pastor, but most people don't realize uh, all of the history that you do know, but you walk through the abbey and, and in the ground are graves and on the side are the graves of kings and it's just fascinating. And if you ever get a chance and have too much money to spend and you can't go to the Holy Land, make sure you go there because it's, it's really, really worth, it's, it's worth the trip. It is an impressive thing to look at. Most people don't realize that King Jesus had a coronation. Most people don't realize that he had a moment in time when God the Father... God the Holy Spirit and everyone around, which that's what a coronation is. It's in front of God and everyone to say this is our ruler. There was a moment in time when God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and everyone around watched as he was coronated in a moment in time. When he was declared to be the messenger of the King of Kings. That he would rule. 
In that moment of coronation, even the Father of Jesus, God the Father, the first member of the Trinity, kind of loses control and talks about how proud he is of his little boy. More on that in a few moments. But I want to give you some context for it because it's really significant. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 says, In those days John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and he began preaching. His message was, Repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John. Okay, so you got to let all this sink in. Again, when we start reading the Bible, we kind of sleep and we wait for the pastor to tell us what's significant. But there is a context that makes this real. Last week in our study of who is this man, and what we're trying to do is not take a Baptist look at Jesus or an evangelical look at Jesus or a Protestant look at Jesus. We're just trying to take a look at Jesus from the Bible. A significant character in the life of Christ is John the baptizer, and you'll see in a moment why he's significant, but that was last Sunday's message. And if you missed it, make sure you go back and watch it on the internet. It's important. But Isaiah the prophet said this of John, according to Matthew here, he is the voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. You do realize what he's describing here, right? Well, let me show you what he's describing. Would you put the picture up there for me? That's what he's describing. That's the actual, that's actually the town crier or the royal herald, herald proclaiming the birth of the prince this last year. That's what he looked like. Kind of freakish. We're not royal. Hey, yay, hey, yay. And he pronounces it. Then he takes that piece of paper, and outside of, the, uh, uh, outside of the royal house, he puts it on a board so everybody can read it. It's a different world. We think, we, we look at the, uh, the American Revolution, and we think this is democracy, and that's not. It's not totally true. It's a different form of democracy. In fact, in some ways, they have more access to their... Uh, to the parliament members than we do because when they want to make a statement, they literally go outside of parliament and stand on bricks, which they call soapbox, and they proclaim things. I'm declaring this, and that's where they're still interviewed to this day, and it's changing because of terrorism and different things. But this is what they do in the tradition of British way. If an announcement is to be made, that weird-looking guy with a huge mouth and weird vestments goes out and proclaims it. So just so you know that I'm not making this up, Isaiah said that there would be a town crier for the coming of the Messiah. And let me describe his appearance. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair. Camel, not hamel. I don't know what a hamel is. Coarse camel hair. And he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. And when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, and this is what we looked at last week, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe. For we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. And that's a reference to the tree of Israel. That was something they would have understood. He just said, God's about to cut you off. Because remember, the religious leaders of their day are claiming to be spiritually healthy because of the children of Abraham and their sacrifice, the sacrificial system, the Levitical law. Some of you are sleeping through, we're reading through the Bible, about three dozen of us together, and you're in Leviticus, and it was the hardest week of your life except for the videos. I know. Being a super spiritual graduate of Bible school and seminary, I enjoy every rule. 
Not true. <laughs> I'm just thankful for grace because that would be my job to teach you about those Levitical laws. But the truth is, you just went through those and, and, and that, cuts, that root is about to be cut off. So verse, verse 10, even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees, talking about them. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into fire. Verse 11, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. So take a breath and realize John's describing his baptism. My baptism is for the repentance of sin. That's what you do. These people are being baptized aren't just doing a religious ceremony. They're actually saying, I repent of my sins. But someone is coming soon who's actually greater than I so much greater than I, that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that was what last week's message was about. He is ready to separate. Now listen to what this, this coming one is going to do. He's going to separate chaff from the wheat. That's the, that's the shell from the real deal. And it with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area and gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. That's a rough message. John the town crier screamed, here comes the one you've been told about. It's not me. He's coming very soon. In fact, he says, it's recorded for us in John, that he said, there's the Lamb of God. He even points at him in the middle of a message that's going to take away the sin of the world, not just cover it. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Now, the Greek in this, uh, in this sentence here, in verse 13, is kind of interesting because it, it's, it's a little more graphic than English. We kind of go, oh, so we went over. We, we sort of think it's a casual. I mean, maybe you know this was intended, but, but, it's, uh, but it's, it reads casually. Jesus is just kind of going over to Galilee. He goes to the Jordan River. He sees John baptized, and he goes, hey, baptize me too. That's not what the Greek says. The Greek actually says that it was planned, almost like it was on a calendar, that, John, uh, that Jesus is intentionally going over to, uh, from Galilee to the Jordan River, that he is taking a trip, briefcase in hand, do, to do something, to accomplish something. So even though the conversation that's about to take place between John the baptizer, he's not a Baptist at this point. We got him saved later. But that was a Baptist joke. I've only got three of them, so you need to make sure you laugh. But the fact is that John the baptizer is baptizing. Jesus shows up. And the other, uh, this story is told uh, in, in three of the four Gospels. The fourth Gospel actually tells us about Jesus' baptism, but it's only described in three, uh, in three of the four. And in the other two, it says that while John was baptizing, so you need to picture the scene. There are people, maybe hundreds around John. There are maybe thousands listening to him herald the truth of the coming Savior. But there are maybe hundreds or at least dozens in the water with him, he's baptizing, when Jesus shows up. And it tells us that Jesus left Galilee to go to the Jordan River to find John so that John would baptize him. He's on a clock. This is intended. This is not accidental. It's not casual. This is actually planned except for John. Verse 14. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? John has no clue how God wants to use him. Important note there. John knows the message. He knows he's a herald. He even knows that he's the one prophesied by Isaiah. How weird would that be? He, he talks about the, this stuff. He is proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. He even declares that he's the one who will take the sin of the world away. But he, he doesn't understand why Jesus is coming to be baptized. I want to I put a side note here. I want to make it clear as we go through the story of Jesus, Jesus does not just perplex you. And he didn't just confuse the disciples. 
Jesus confuses everyone. I know that, because I've talked to several of you, you're really upset about the abortion thing in New York State. I am too. And how could God allow this? I don't know. How could he allow every male Hebrew child in Egypt to be killed up to two age or drowned in the Jordan up to two years age? How could he do that? How could he allow the children in Jerusalem or Bethlehem when he was born to be slaughtered? I don't know. I want to remind you as as you get upset, and and we need to do everything we can uh, within the law to make sure that children are protected in and outside of the womb. We are a pro-life church. But I do want you to remember, it's going to get worse. It's going to get more violent. It's, gonna be, it's going to be worse. And that God is still on the throne. Our job, our task, is not to save babies, but to tell people that their souls can be saved by Jesus. We've got to remember that. Jesus died for the abortion doctor just like the aborted baby. And somewhere in there, we need to take a stand within the law while understanding that the sovereign God is still on the throne and we can trust him. He's good. He's got a plan. I, I, don't, I don't know how all that works out. I get perplexed like you. How can you allow this to go on? I don't know. If you love me, why do you allow me to be sick? Why do you? I don't know. But even John's perplexed. And you know why? Because I just shared with you what John's baptism was about. In Matthew chapter 3, let me tell you why he's confused. Matthew 3, 5, and 6 says this. People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea, all over Jordan Valley, went to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. So the baptism of John was an altar call. It was a repentance. It was part of it. Now let me be clear, and I, and I want to say this again, and I talked about this last week. It was not water baptism that saved them. That's why John actually, in last week's message, was undermining his own baptism. He's saying, look, because the, the uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders were sending people to say, are you the Messiah? You're acting like the Messiah, and you're not a rabbi, so why are you baptizing? What gives you that authority? And his response was, well, I'm only baptizing with water, but the one I'm actually proclaiming, the Messiah you're looking for, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. He undermines his own baptism. So to be clear, baptism doesn't save you, but it shows, and this was in last week's text as well, it is a sign of repentance. L let me be clear on this. There's nothing wrong with walking an aisle. And in the, in the New Testament time, the way you walked an aisle was you were baptized. You didn't walk an aisle. You didn't pray a prayer. You said, I know I'm a sinner. He's the Savior. I need to die to myself and be raised to new life in Christ. This was a picture of that. Today, in our modern times, because of the evangelist movement of the late 1800s and the early 1900s, which started this, people walk aisles. Come talk to me. Come talk to me if you want to know my Lord. And people started walking aisles, and then it became organized in the church, and now we have counselors in the back who chum the waters. They, we, it, it's, it's become a little deceitful, deceitful in my mind, but, but the truth is uh, you do not need to pray a prayer to be saved. Uh, you don't need to walk an aisle to be saved. You just need to know you're a sinner, and he's the only one that can save you, and call on the name of the Lord. You don't, I, I know I freak some of you out because you're going, you don't need to pray. Well, if you don't have a tongue, you can still be saved. If you're a stroke victim and you can't move the bottom of your mouth, you can still be saved. It's not a movement. It's not a water thing. It's a God thing. 
And all who call upon the name of the Lord, all who believe in him, will be saved. They don't have to be Baptists. They don't have to be Assemblies of God. They can be Catholic. They can be whatever. But calling on the name of the Lord to be saved, leaning on him for salvation is what's required. And that's what John's talking about. But John's baptism was people walking an aisle. I want you to picture this for a second. How John felt is probably how we would feel this morning if a dude looking like that in robes and a, a blue thing with an English accent. I don't know why he looks like that in our minds. But if he came and sat here in the middle and people say, who are you? And he said, I'm Yeshua. And he floated five feet above the crowd and proved who he was. Could you imagine at the end of the service if, well, you'd be shocked if I did an altar call in the first place, but if I did one and we're singing just as I am, he walked the aisle? Think about it. Would that not freak you out? If you went to a Billy Graham conference and, well, he's with the Lord, so that would be weird too. But his son, Franklin Graham, and he's preaching the gospel and there goes Jesus down the aisle to just as I am. Everybody around would go, what's he doing? That's what John was thinking, because that was repentance. That's the context of that. This wasn't, baptism wasn't just a thing you did. Baptism was a declaration you're making. And, and, and to John, John knew that this was the sent one from God. John knew that this was the sinless one who would remove man's sins. John seems to understand what's coming. He may not have known the how, but he understood what was coming. And Jesus had just walked the aisle to do something that looked like repentance. And John whispered in his ear, and there's hundreds of people around watching this, what are you doing? Maybe John's concerned that people will misunderstand. Maybe John himself doesn't understand. Because John knew that he was God. If you're here this morning and you are a Jehovah's Witness, let me be clear that there are plenty of, plenty of verses, and I'm going to read one for you in a moment, that tell that Jesus is God. Clearly. Clearly the scripture teaches that. But it's more than just a verse that says it. It's a context. And John is perplexed because he's about to baptize God's sent Messiah, the Holy One, who came to remove our sin. And to John in his, in his doctrinal context, that was freakish. Why are you being baptized? You see, Jesus does a lot of stuff that throws us off. And we got to get over worrying about that. He is not here in fear of us understanding. Jesus did not care that day whether the crowd thought he had secret sin or not. What he cared about is what he says in Matthew 3.15, the beginning of the next verse. But Jesus responded to him, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. A God reference there is, is a reference to the Father, but the Trinity. This is the weird thing about Jesus, just a side note. When he refers to God, we often think of the Father, but I want to make it clear. There's no separation between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So to be clear, when he refers to God, he's referring to himself, commanding himself. Let me show you this in other places. In Philippians 2, 6 through 8, it says in verse 6, though he was God, I'm sorry, my Jehovah's Witness friend, again, Jesus is God. He, Jesus, all you got to do is look at the context. That's who he's talking about. Did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, not his divinity. That's important for our friends at Bethel. He did not give up his divinity. He gave up the divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And not only in how he was born did he give up his divine privileges, but when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. So when John goes, why are you doing this baptism? It's walking an aisle. It's repenting. Jesus said, well, look, I have to do it because I have to do everything that God has required of me. 
I'm here to obey God. John 4, 34 says, then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me. Wow. In John 6, 38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not my own will. Wow. So just to be clear, and, and this is something important is if we're going to really understand this individual that we know as Jesus or Yeshua. To be clear, you have been taught your whole life that Jesus died on the cross because he loves you. Now, I'm not here to doubt his love. That is absolutely clear in Scripture as well. And I'm not here to doubt him coming because he's a second member of the Trinity. But if we're going to separate them for a second, let me be clear. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. We, we look at him. We pray to him. We, we in our minds, and the way we've taught, and, the, and our understanding, especially Levit Leviticus, we look, at the, we look at the Old Testament God as the Father. We look at the New Testament God as Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's just the worship leader, the cool one, like Chad. That's, that's kind of how we look at it. That's just, I mean, Jesus is the youth pastor. The, the Father is kind of the pastor, you know, that, that old guy. And, and the Holy Spirit's the cool, new, young. That's not the truth. The truth is that Jesus came to die on the cross not because he loved you primarily, but because for the same reason he, he was baptized, because his job was to obey the Father. That was his job. Again, I don't want to get into splitting the Trinity too much. It actually doesn't say the Father, it says God. So in reality, he's obeying himself. The Trinity, the council of God is one, and yet there are three, and you're going to see that in a minute. I can't explain it. This passage, this story shows the Trinity more than any other passage in Scripture, except maybe the Mount of Transfiguration. But it's remarkable. But I want to make it clear that when Jesus says, God sent me, we always assume in our brain he's talking about the Father. I'd like to say he's talking about the council of God, which is all three of him. Did you catch that? So let's move on because I can't explain the Trinity. It's just taught. So let's go ahead and be prejudiced in our thinking that the Father, but I want to make it clear. It's not Jesus going, but I love them, Daddy, so much. Dad and the Father goes, you're so whiny, son. Go ahead and save them. That's not how this works. God sent his son. Jesus came out of obedience. And John didn't understand that. So in verse four, uh, 14 again, John tried to talk Jesus out of being baptized. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. Now you understand that because I'm a sinner, you're not. So why are you coming to me, he asked. But Jesus said, it should be done for we must carry all that God requires. He's here to obey. Side point. We live in a time in the church. All right, take a deep breath because this is going to hurt. We live in a time in the church we have so removed reverence for God, for the fear of the Lord, or the respect for who he really, really is, and from the willingness to do what God asks us to do, especially if we don't get its point, that we, all, we, we only do what makes sense to us, what we feel like doing in God's name. We have made it so about us, even those of us walking with God, that we're like John going, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Let me give you some examples. I get the question all the time. If God is sovereign, then why should I pray? And there's a hundred reasons for that, but let me tell you the bottom line reason. Because you're told to pray. Yeah, but if he's sovereign, what's the point? He told you to pray. Yeah, but I, I mean, I know that, Pastor, but really, what's the effect? What if you never know the effect? Will you still obey? I mean, what if when Jesus is going under the water, everybody in the crowd thinks that he's a sinner, he's admitting a sin? 
That's not part of the equation because the Father or the Godhead or the counsel of God told him, be baptized on this date by this man. Some of you haven't been baptized yourself because, well, I'm saved. Baptism is a part of salvation or water baptism, and I really am scared to get in front of all those people. You should do it because you've been instructed to. And it's not because we're a Baptist church, but, but because we're instructed to. If you're a child of God, living for God, why haven't you been baptized? You've got to come up with a biblical answer for that because you've been instructed to. And the truth is we've been instructed to baptize you. You baptize, you know, go make disciples in the name of the Father, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a mandate of the church, to disciple you. It actually isn't to reach the lost, which is why we don't have an altar call, but to actually grow you up in the things of Christ. That's why I keep calling us a Bible institute instead of what we think an evangelistic event. This is not an evangelistic event. And our job as we look at Scripture is to make you like Christ, to be obedient to the Father even in areas that you don't understand. It's true. If you haven't been baptized, why? Why not? Why should you pray? Because God told you to. Some of you are watching online because I get emails from you. And your thought is you don't need to be part of the local church because you get good preaching online. And frankly, you don't want to go to church. That's fine. But you should go to church because God told you to go to church. Oh, that's not what the Bible says. Absolutely it is. Hebrews says don't, don't forsake the gathering together. There is something very significant about God's children coming together, and it doesn't have to be in this form, but there is, a, there is a significant thing in the kingdom about God gathering his kids to remind each other, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. That's why we gather. I, I am a, a personally, and this is my pet peeve because I am a pastor, I want to make it clear that in East Texas, if a person dies, having been saved at seven, living a moral life, if they're not actively involved in a body of Christ of some local level, they're not a good Christian. They're disobedient. Now, they could be saved and disobedient because God is forgiving. But people keep saying, why isn't the church what she should be? Why? I'm tired of the church. I don't like the church. Well, then be the change. Come in, be obedient to God, submit to the Holy Spirit, and walk with Him. And short of not being physically able to be part of a local body, there's no excuse for a child of God. And, and, and I'm going to say it here because it's safe and we're not sitting in my office. But for you to claim that you are spiritually healthy but not in spiritual fellowship is self-deception. You need somebody else. We need each other. I need you. You need me. Uh, and it's not about the preaching. That's not at all what it's about. It's about the gathering. It's about spurring each other on. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 tells us to uh, not forsake gathering together, as is the habit of some, but we should spur each other on to love and good deeds. And we could go on. We could talk about giving. Some of you don't give, and it has nothing to do with the budget of Carpenter's Way, but the truth is you're instructed to be a cheerful giver. And there are only two types of people in the church, givers and, re and receivers. I didn't say takers because it has a negative connotation. Some of you are in a position where you need to receive the benevolence of the church, and we give it out graciously, lots of it. You don't know about that because we don't want to shame people. There are middle-income people that receive. There are wealthy people sometimes who are having a difficult time that we help. And then there are impoverished people that we as a church, you give, and we support them. We encourage them, not ongoing, but we are able once in a while to help. There are limits to it. But let me be clear that you are, according to the New Testament, either to be a receiver or a giver. There's no middle ground. Even if it's $5 a month. 
And it has nothing to do with the church or the church's vision, but if you belong to a local body of believers that are spurring each other on to love and good deeds, we have a financial obligation as well. That, that's simple biblical truth from the Old Testament to the New. And I don't like to talk about this any more than you do because of the culture in which we live and the pastors that have jets that fly all over the world. I assure you, we don't have any jets here. And you can look at our financial records, but I'm simply here to tell you that you need to be worshiping in a place that you trust enough to, com to cooperate financially for mission work, for gathering work, for discipleship work, and all that takes money in our culture. Does that make sense? What does this have to do with Jesus? I think there's a hundred reasons why John would be concerned that Jesus was going to be baptized. Don't you? People are going to misunderstand. You don't need to be baptized. You're God himself, so who are, we, who, are you, who are you being buried to your own will? But here is Jesus, fully man, fully God, going, look, John, I know you don't get this, but I'm here to do everything my father ordered me to do. This sets the tone for his ministry because about a half dozen times, Jesus is going to say, I didn't come to do my own will, which is also weird because it tells us that this guy we're studying, if we're to take him out of stained glass, had a different will. If you're looking for an example of what his will was that would have been different than his father, you don't have to go any farther than the night he's betrayed where he prays that the father will remove this cup from him. Take this cup from me. But he ends with, but not my will, yours be done. This, this baptism is a coronation, and the step to coronation is, I submit, I obey. And so John agreed to baptize him. I want to remind you of this point, 1 John 2, 6, and you're going to see this a lot. I know, because I am one of us. I want a good life too. I want my son to have a great job. I want my daughter to have a good job and have joy and be married. I want the government to leave us alone. That's what I want more than anything. Leave us alone. I want to teach the Bible. I want us to have... Not, I want us to spend every money on every penny on ministry, but I want us to have just enough to make budget and live and have joy. I want all that stuff. But in light of all that, there's something God wants for me, and that's to obey Him even in light of all of that falling apart. Are you scared? Are you concerned? Are you worried about your reputation? Do you not feel you have enough money so you'll have to cut down on Starbucks to give? Whatever. You need to be like Jesus, who at times I think didn't always understand as he's growing everything, the people's reaction, the religious leader's reaction. He was misunderstood. He still did what his father said, even if people misunderstood. My encouragement to you is do the right thing even if people misunderstand in obedience to the father. If you say you live in God, live as Jesus lived. Matthew 3.16, it gets cool here. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, so he's coming up out, picture this, there's people all around, the heavens were opened, <laughs> here's the coronation, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, not being a dove, but like a dove, please take note, it's imagery, it's the only thing that floated out of heaven that everybody would understand, that's why he's recorded as a dove. For those of you with doves on your Bible or on the back of your car, or who refer to the dove as the Holy Spirit, you got the wrong picture of him. He is a force to be reckoned with, he transforms and destroys. 
He's the third member of the Trinity. He's not the force in Star Wars, and he's not the, the gentle worship leader of the group. He is God, the power that resurrected Jesus Christ. And he just gradually fell from heaven, and he, he descended like a dove and settled on Jesus. And that's pretty cool because 800 years before, Isaiah the prophet said this about Jesus from Isaiah chapter 11. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Hebrew word there could have been translated settle. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the scepter. He is empowerment. He's the wisdom. When a king or a queen or a sovereign is given the scepter, everybody watching realizes that all of the king's resources, all of the, all of the nation's resources, all of the authority, all of the power, all of the counsel, all of that is now at his disposal. When Jesus is being coronated, he's baptized in obedience to the Father. He comes up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit floats down, in the, not in the form of a dove, but like a dove. It doesn't even say in the form of a dove. But like a dove, he floats down, and he settles on Jesus. Why? Because for the next three and a half years, the Holy Spirit will empower him, enshrine him, and, and actually be the power with which not only he lives, but he dies and is resurrected. The Holy Spirit is the scepter of this coronation service. And he rested on him. Why? Because now he's inhabiting him. He's empowering him. Verse 17, after that, a voice from heaven said, and get this, please do not read this as scripture, but read it as, as a father about a son. This is my dearly loved son. He brings me so much joy. Wow, that doesn't sound like divine conversation. I, I wish it were even more earthly than that. It's like the father is watching the son obey him obey the plan, submit to it, walk from Galilee to the Jordan River. He watches him go to John. The baptizer's like, dude, you don't need to do this and you're going to confuse the crowds. And Jesus goes, I have to do this because I'm going to do everything my father tells me to. Okay. He baptizes. He comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit floats down and the father is poised in heaven going, that's my boy. You know, this is kind of cool because let me be clear for you. This is the father looking at the son like you did the first time your kids at T-ball hit a home run. That's my boy. And everybody around went, whatever, my kid's next. Or, or, or when your child, when your child uh, gets, here, I'll culturalize it. When your son kills his first deer or some of you, your daughter, and he guts it and he brings it home and it's a three-pointer, but it might as well be a 15-pointer. You put it all over Facebook, blood and all. That's my son, or that's my daughter. Killed his or her first deer. That's a big deal. Or when your child takes a bow after, after being honored for his or her good work, or not so good work, but you're proud that they actually colored in the lines. Colors were bad, but they colored in the lines. This is the father saying, I love that boy. I love my son so much, and he makes me so happy. That's what the Greek says here. I'd like to teach you a Latin word. It's Imago Dei. This is, uh, Zach was laughing at me this week because I said I was going to teach Imago Dei. He says, oh, it's the only time a Protestant will use Latin. And then I told him I wasn't a Protestant and we had a debate. But he's only 22, so we're going to give him lots of room. But Imago Dei is Latin for image of God. 
And you know this because uh, you know this debate. Nobody, everybody guesses different people, psychologists, everybody, theologians want to debate what it is. Uh, it's in Genesis 1.27a, it says, so God created human beings in his own image. And in the, in, in the image of God, he created them. I believe, personally, that the omaga, Imago Dei is how the Father loves the Son. It's relationships. It's a parent to child. Why do I believe that? Because in the New Testament, it tells us only one thing about what God was doing before the world was created. And it says that the Father was loving the Son. And you know what? It doesn't matter if you're saved or unsaved. The truth is that every person ever created that has a soul has the Imago Dei in them. It doesn't only come when they're saved. It doesn't leave when they're not. And the truth is, it doesn't, in most cases, and there are exceptions of extremely evil people, but most people, even the most evil people in our world, still love their kids. They find pride in their children. They want their children to go into the family business. And when they do something ridiculously simple, the father goes, that's my boy, or that's my girl. I'm so proud of her. It doesn't matter how wicked you are. The truth is that this is a constant. And I believe that's the Imago Dei. And every one of you have done that with your kids. And that is how God felt about Jesus. And I'd like to add, you're going to find later, that's exactly how he feels about you. Someday, the Father or the Trinity will look at you when you enter heaven, and what are they going to say about you? Welcome, you good and faithful servant, into the joy of your salvation. Me? Are you, are you talking to me? Yeah, I'm so proud of you. I'm not sure which day you're talking about, but most of my days, to be honest, Lord, and I'm not trying to talk you out and let me in, but most days I, I wasn't that faithful. Imago day. I'm proud of you. The father here is so proud of the son, and he screams it to everybody. I love this boy. I love this boy. He makes me so happy. You know what's interesting about this coronation service? Uh, we know as the baptism of Jesus, the inauguration of his ministry. Three gospels, as I've already mentioned, tell about it. Three speak of the Trinity's uh, involvement in this. This is a clear Trinitarian passage. It's a clear Trinitarian story. But the question has to be asked, why was Jesus baptized who had never sinned? I mean, we still haven't really answered that. We know that in obedience to the Father. But I'd like to give you three reasons I think the baptism had to take place, and then we're going to wrap up. Number one, it was the coronation or inauguration of his ministry. All there that day, uh, everybody watching, and even for us, it was recorded what happened. The Jesus ministry starts there. And when we get further into the story, I'm going to refer back to this and tell you that I believe one of the reasons, not only does Scripture say that his first miracle is turning water to wine, but, it all, but I want to say that he would have been, at this point, having separated himself from his divine privileges, he couldn't have done a miracle before this time because the Holy Spirit, who empowered him for those miraculous activities, had not rested on him yet. This was a huge event. This is a huge event for you to understand. Jesus at this point is dying to his old life. I am no longer just Mary and Joseph's boy. I am now the son of God actually going to do, prioritize that in my life and I'm going to serve him. This is the inauguration of all that and everybody watching is going, that's weird. And they're gonna refer back to this as a weird event. The second reason is because his father told him to be baptized. And we have forgotten the importance of obedience. Blind obedience. Simple, ridiculous, blind obedience to God. Well, I'm not sure God understands. Yes, he does. 
He still asks you to do stuff. And you should do it. Or don't claim to be fellowshipping with God. I mean, you are in fellowship because of what Christ did. But if you want to be a disciple, you're going to have to pick up your cross, put your selfish ambition aside, and obey him, even if you understand or don't understand it. And thirdly, I'd like to say that the reason I think he had John baptize him is to say, you need to go back and remember what he said. This guy's the real deal. It's one thing for John to say that he's the prophet that Isaiah talked about. It's another thing for Jesus to say he's the prophet Isaiah talked about. Validating his message. So here's my question for you today. Are you saved? If you're not, water baptism is fine. Walking an aisle is great, but only Jesus can save you. That's been said in John's message all along, and I'm saying it again right now. It's good to be a Baptist. It's good to grow up assemblies of God. It's good to be a Lutheran, but it won't get you to heaven. Only Jesus can take you there. Call on the name of the Lord. Don't become a Baptist. Be a child of God. We can work on the rest later. Number two, if you are God's kid, are you being obedient? It has nothing to do with your salvation. It has everything to do with your life. Are you being obedient? What has God asked you to do that you have said, I don't understand why you want me to do that? His response to you is, that's irrelevant. That is not part of the equation. If you said that I am Lord, do what I tell you to do, even if everybody misunderstands. Because that's what Jesus did. And that's what Jesus did for you. He loved us so much, and I mean so much, that he didn't just come and die. He came and was misunderstood. Even by his disciples, even by his baptizer. And he constantly, as you're going to see, is having to defend what he was supposed to do to those he was closest with. But he still did it. Because he loves you that much. And if he loves you enough to save you, he loves you enough to sustain you. Run to him. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we walk through the, your life, help us to understand all that you did in obedience to your Father so that the overall plan of the Trinity to adopt us into your family so that, so that you could love us like you love Jesus could take place. Now help us trust you. And if there's somebody here today or watching online who does not know you, Father, they may even think they know you, but whose life is not reflecting the value system of God, may today be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to start in five minutes.